Welcome to WeRDB. I am Brenton, joined as always by Danielle. That's me. Thanks again for joining us this week as we count up the IMDb's best movies of all time and discuss some of the greatest films you mightn't ever have seen. This week, rated as number 48 on the Internet Movie Database by millions of film lovers from around the world is Once Upon a Time in the West. Released in 1968, starring Henry Fonda and Charles Bronson, Once Upon a Time in the West is a spaghetti western set in the American West, primarily in the US state of Arizona, toward the end of the 19th century. Based on an original screenplay, Once Upon a Time in the West is co-written and directed by Sergio Leone. So this is his follow-up to the Dollars Trilogy, The Good, the Bad and the Ugly was his last one, from 66, Uh, and we spoke about that on episode... Nine, I believe it was. So we spoke about what does it actually mean to be a spaghetti western, what was the film style, and what did Sergio Leone like to actually do with these westerns. Um, so this was his follow-up. And if you would like to hear more about those things, I recommend going to listen to the discussion on the good, the bad, and the ugly. So this one was, what, two years later? Yes. It looks a lot better. Yeah, yeah. And I know that you said, oh, this is like, it's been restored and all that. Some of the choice of shots, like the good, the bad, and the ugly looks like it was filmed in the 60s. This doesn't look like it was filmed in the 60s. Yeah, it looks more 70s. Just, well, no, I was thinking even more 80s. Oh, really? Yeah, just like the quality um, and the clarity of some of the cinematography and some of the cinematographic choices um, for angles and panning and framing and all that, it was it looks really good. There might be quite a few comparisons that we actually make between this and the good and the bad and the ugly, um, just because that's the natural conversation. Uh, a lot of the same people worked on it. It's obviously Ennio Morricone doing the soundtrack again. He's very great with his classic scores. So there's a lot of uh, overlap there. That said, I didn't like this one nearly as much. The score. Oh, the score. Yes. Okay. I thought you meant the movie. Well, that too. We'll get into that. We'll um, get into- the score is very unique, but it's not nearly as iconic. Yeah. And it's not nearly as cohesive as I think it was meant to be. It seems a bit fragmented and, yeah. you know, there's melodies that are meant to like pertain to certain characters and that wasn't at all clear to me. And there were choices specifically like with the harmonica at first, it was only you only heard it when it was actually being played, and then it was you heard it when you know it wasn't actually physically yeah. being played. So it's like if you're gonna if you're gonna stick to one thing for like the first half of the movie, stick to that for the whole movie. Well, there's a couple of parts where you hear the harmonica and you think, oh, the characters must be able to hear that, but no, it's actually just the score and it's playing in the background. Well, and that's the thing, and it's the same tune. Yeah, that's why it was a little confusing. Yeah, so I'm just like, just, mm. and I, I get it, but it didn't play out very well. I just thought before we got really into it, um, I thought it was interesting to note that the story of this is by Sergio Leone with Dario Argento, who was very big in the 70s and 80s as a horror movie director. He hadn't really hit his stride in 68, as well as Bernardo Bertolucci, who also hadn't hadn't really become a big guy yet. But he was in the 70s and 80s as well for more erotica. And we've actually seen one of his works. 
So um, this is kind of their big break then. It is. Uh, Sergio Leone obviously had a lot behind him. He was towards the end of his career. Um, but Dario Argento and Bernardo Bertolucci, they hadn't really got into it. And I knew those names before I'd seen this. Purely from their other stuff, I, I knew that they were big. And I just thought it was interesting to note that they were doing this pretty much before they were doing anything else. And do you know what's interesting? You said and they went into their own fields, like horror and erotica. Well, <laughs> but you say horror and erotica, and I'm like, I can see how they went from this to that. I can see how there are sort of influences. There's a lot of very nearly naked women in this, considering that it's mm. the 60s. And just some of the intimate scenes are, I think, a little bit avant-garde for the time that this film was created. And also just some of the, you know, suspense and foreshadowing and things obviously have existed since the beginning of filmmaking, but I can see how some of the suspenseful moments in this movie were kind of, could be seen as kind of thriller-esque, which yeah, is, no, translates into horror. So, yeah. like, you say that, and I'm like, very interestingly, that's not surprising to me that that's where they went with this. Well, they were credited for the story. I'm not sure how much creative freedom they actually had on those sort of things, but they did mm. work on the film. Um, do you remember watching The Dreamers, that Eva Green movie that weird set in France? French movie, yeah. Yeah, I kind of like it. Um, that was a Bertolucci film. Righto. <laughs> yeah. It, that was different. Yes. That was different, y'all. Okay. That's sort of his feel. Um, so this movie is pretty much the first one to start the once upon a time prefix, Trope. which yeah. has just become a massive cliche in cinema these days. Um, the last film that Sergio Leone actually made was Once Upon a Time in America, and that was a gangster flick with Robert De Niro in the 80s. And then after that, there was Once Upon a Time in China with Jet Li, Once Upon a Time in Mexico with Johnny Depp, Once Upon a Time in Venice with Bruce Willis, and obviously Once Upon a Time in Hollywood with DiCaprio and Brad Pitt. Um, and that's why Quentin Tarantino named it Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is because it's become such a thing. Well, and what that thing is, what I'm asking, is is it when you're looking at sort of this almost cliched look at what is Hollywood, what is the West, what is America, you know Maybe. What I mean? For some of these bigger directors who have done projects with that title, I think that's what they were going for. But there's some really cheesy ones out there that from lesser known directors that didn't get that and they were just playing on it and trying to make money um because there's once upon a time in london mumbai rio norway vietnam new york india once upon a time in space um so the ones that you could take seriously would that yes. be what they were kind of going for okay interesting. i would imagine so that's an interesting uh way to to think of it because once upon a time in the west is basically a summarization of what is the western yeah it's and basically, it's a commentary on, like, what is the Western film genre. Um, so that's really interesting to me because I didn't get that. But looking at just how much they actually referenced other Westerns in this movie and the the tropes that exist in Western movies. So, you know, almost the cliched kind of elements. They played on that and they worked on that to really make this out to be, you know, kind of the ultimate Western that comments on other westerns so i thought that was really interesting well i had that as a feeling because i feel like this felt more like a traditional western mm -hmm. than the good and the bad the ugly did because this had you know 
There was action on steam trains. There was saloon fights and duels. And it felt like the sort of... It was hitting all of the notes as what you knew as the Western feel. But it was different, though. And that was the point. Because it was looking at exploring the elements of the story as opposed to the plot itself. Yes. Which, retrospectively, you're like... Oh, that makes so much more sense because I didn't know what the fuck was going on, you know? And then when you actually think about what it means, so they were exploring, like, the essence of what is the antagonist and the essence of what is, like, the female lead and everything. It kind of makes a little bit more sense as opposed to trying to follow this somewhat linear storyline that it's hard to follow. It makes sense. I know what you're saying. I was purely comparing it to The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly in the sense of the Western genre, because that movie's basically just a weird treasure-hunting movie during the Civil War. There's no strong female lead. It doesn't explore many elements of what it was like to be in the West. Mm -hmm. Um, If you took the Dollars trilogy as a whole, you might get more of a picture of that, but I think Once Upon a Time in the West sort of summarizes what that is and what that looks like. Whereas to me, I feel like... The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly is the classic American Western. The soundtrack, definitely. Yeah. Well, and because of that, like, you look at it, you look at the way that it's filmed. Pretty sure you had Mexicans and Indians and white guys and the frontier and cactuses Mm. and horses and cowboy hats and shootouts. And it had everything. He was a bounty hunter. Yeah. And it had a fairly linear, straightforward story. That you followed, which was very It was definitely a lot more linear. I could follow that one a lot easier. And that's the point, is that at that time, people wanted to see cowboys shooting each other. And they wanted to know basically what the story was. Cinema, to me, at that time, wasn't particularly meta yet. Mm. You know? So to kind of see that is avant-garde. And it, like, I don't know if Once Upon a Time in the West was something that a lot of people really remembered seeing and watched over and over again, like other Clint Eastwood and John Wayne films. You know what I mean? Plus the whole thing about like it being shocking with Henry Fonda, I think would have been a turn off. Okay, so you think people were turned off because Henry Fonda is cast out of his normal character? I think it would have been an initial box office draw, but I think in the long term it wouldn't have solidified this movie as like the typical western in people's minds the same yeah, way okay. That's that a good point. John Wayne and Clint Eastwood films would have been. Yeah. Because typecasting was much more a thing back then. People Definitely. played the same character over and over again. Um and for those of you who don't know Henry Fonda was typically cast as the protagonist or the good guy. We have reviewed one of his films before, 12 Angry Men on episode 5. He was in that. Uh, and he's obviously the good guy there. Yes, he was in that. Okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that was that yeah. long ago. It's a little, yeah, it was a while yeah. ago. And it's very surprising that Clint Eastwood isn't in here because Charles Bronson's very much playing the Clint Eastwood character. Um, maybe Leon just wanted to mix things up a bit because he'd just done the last, like, three movies with him. Yeah, he's like, you need a break. I need yeah. a break from you. I've never seen Charles Bronson in a movie before. He's one of those characters, again, that I know of your work, but I've never seen it before. Mm. I think he played that role relatively well, but it wasn't, like, any faults in that performance I don't think were his. I think they were writing Mm. faults, you know? This definitely does feel like 
a spaghetti western, like Leon, like I said. Oh, yeah. It's got the, the sound, it's got the feel, it's got the same people working on it from the Dollars Trilogy. You've got those iconic long sequences with no dialogue, great development just from watching the characters. Um, and we spoke about that on the Good and the Bad and the Ugly episode. Um, so I do like just sitting there and watching and listening because he's very good at doing that progression without much dialogue. It's it's showing, yeah. not telling. Yeah. Well, and part of what made this such like an appealing visual storytelling piece was that the set design was awesome. It really was. It was so good. So you look at like the little shack blacksmith bar horse stable yes. hotel in the middle of the desert. That was so cool. I, I could just like walk around that set and look at every little thing that's placed we both there said for a reason. We've never seen anything like that before. And it made total sense, and it was so visually appealing. I feel um, like that's what was trying to be recreated from, like, the Star Wars cantina. Is that feel of, like, yeah. cozy but rough in the middle of nowhere. And you got, like, sleazy guys coming in. Well, and the thing, too, that I really liked is that, like, there's probably a fair few criminals in there. And nobody really asks any questions. But you all kind of know each other. And you're all comfortable mm. in here, even though it's really, like, Honestly, let's let's be real. That wouldn't be very comfortable. I don't know. It just had a really interesting feel, and I think that's a really good point you make about them trying to recreate it in Star Wars, which I think they did fairly okay. And then there's obviously the mansion, which is a common set. Which mansion? The, the McBain farmhouse? Yeah, the main farmhouse. That's so interesting because that wouldn't be common for that time to have a house that big and that nice. That's why I class it as a mansion, yeah. Yeah, it was huge. It was all timber. Often a lot of the places, like I'm thinking in my head, similarly what you'd see at this time is like the sod houses that we just saw in in Dances with Wolves or log cabins. Mm, But no, you've got this huge slat timber structure that's like all varnished and it's... Big open spaces. Well, he's obviously a wealthy person because he's planning to put a town there. Well, you would have had to be to build that house, to buy that land. Yeah. And even the saloon later on is a very good set just to look at. It's, It's dressed really well. It's very typical. Like, it's very stereotypical of, like, the saloons that you'd see in those towns at that time. But even this one in particular, like, it was really extra nice you know what i mean it was the paneling was ornately carved and well decorated and it was honestly cleaner than most others i've ever seen they just they paid a lot of attention to detail the initial opening scene at that train station Mm. like it's a it's a train station under construction i don't know i was just that's probably the thing i'm most impressed with with this movie is the set design well, there's even the inside of the train car. What was his name? Mr. Morton. Mr. Morton's train car. Mm. That was just gorgeously decorated as well. And you could see that he has wealthy and power. And you've got that just from looking at the ambiance and the furniture and everything. And the fact that it was modified to have the bars that would lower down from the roof because he had polio so that he could actually yeah. walk around. Like... Just all these little details. It was really beautifully done. 
And the fact that it was filmed, I don't know if they used different film or if camera technology got better in that couple of years between the last film and this film, but like you could see all of those details really, mm. really well. And we weren't even watching the high definition version, really. Mm-mm. It was just the standard one. Um, I think we're going to get into spoilers now because I'd really like to look into an actual comparison and what actually happens at the end of this. Mm. So I just wanted to ask, we obviously have never seen this before and we've only seen Good and the Bad and the Ugly once when we reviewed it. Which one do you prefer? Me? Yes. I I think the Good, the Bad and the Ugly because they've got three really well-defined characters who... You know who's who right from the beginning. And that's kind of what I expect from a Western, right? Is like, I shouldn't have to go into it and figure too much shit out. It should be kind of laid out for me. Well, that one literally lays it out. It has the title cards. It says, this is the good. <laughs> this is the bad. This is the ugly. I've, I even forgot about that. Yeah. The point The point being the story. Not that I'm saying that every story has saying. to be linear. But if you're looking at a at a classic Western... The story is supposed to be linear. It's supposed to be easy to follow. And this one wasn't. And there was a lot of, like, talking about people without naming people. Some people didn't have names. It's like, oh, for fuck's sake. Like, who are they talking about? Well, that happens a lot in The Good and the Bad and the Ugly. Clint Eastwood's character obviously doesn't have much of a name. Yeah, but he called him Blondie or whatever, right? Like, he actually addressed him as someone. Yeah, well, they called Charles Bronson Harmonica. Harmonica, yeah. yeah. Um... But I feel like the reason for that is because the good, the bad, and the ugly is more of an epic rather Mm -hmm. than just following along with someone's journey. The thing that made the good, the bad, and the ugly more of an epic was those, you've got the big civil war scene, you've got like the town that's being bombed and destructed. So it it had big sets, big expensive sets. But apart from that, you're basically just following two main characters. It's the good and the ugly on this journey to try and find this treasure while Once Upon a Time in the West felt more like a tragedy, like it's three hours long, that's kind of what I think he was going for as well. Like there's more backstory and motives behind all of them, even though it's clouded in mystery and everything, it's still there. Well, and differently too, you kind of just rock up and, oh, geez, okay, we're in the middle of this story, let's follow along and see what happens. Which maybe I had too much of an expectation in my head of, like I said, this is what a Western is supposed to be in this. It was it was meta-Western. Mm. It was. So the, the storyline is somewhat linear, but it's kind of confusing. And there's transitions that aren't very clear that, like, this is a flashback, this isn't a flashback. You know what I yeah. mean? And, like, some of the cues that... Even in cinema today, you just intuitively know what they mean. They weren't quite on point, so it just made it a little bit more difficult to follow. The story I quite liked. I thought it was it was an interesting one. It's not it's not every day you're it's hearing not typical. about Yeah, you're not hearing about someone but wanting to build their own town. Mm. I found that very compelling and I wanted to see where it went. I was just disappointed that it was actually quite difficult for me to kind of figure out what was going on and i tend to follow stuff like that better than you do and i was still having issues well i just wanted to touch back on the characters because you said the good the bad and the ugly obviously has these three defined characters Mm. i think that fits very much in with what you're looking at in once upon a time in the west you've got charles bronson as the good you've got 
Henry Fonda as the bad and Cheyenne as Tuco. You know what I mean? Like he's he's the comic relief, but he's kind of smart and you know. So you can definitely have these three main characters that are playing these traits in both of them. I think I would have liked a little bit more distinction between the two gangs. Yeah, Cheyenne's character and his motives, it's a little hard to read. I'm like, is he good? Is he bad? What does he want? I think he's helping Jill simply because he was framed and he's pissed off about it. He Mm. was framed as being the one who killed the McBains. He's like, I didn't fucking do that. You know, screw this guy. And then she's all of a sudden. See, that was the other thing, too, is that Harmonica rocks up and he's threatening her. And then all of a sudden she turns on a dime and she really likes this guy. You know what I, I don't mean? know. I don't know what her motives were or what she would... They didn't develop those relationships properly. Yeah, I had no idea who she was into or what her motives were, why she was doing certain things. There was big chunks of this when I had no idea what was going on for most of this movie. And everyone's motives were unclear, really. Like, I really think that this definitely demands a second watch. Yeah, and there were a lot of cues, especially with her. I'm like, I bet she used to be a hooker. And then it turns out yeah. she was. And it makes a lot of sense just because of, like, the way she is and the things she says and, you know, her attitude towards life. I'm like, that's not very typical of most, you know, church-going Christian women of the time. She wasn't scared of anyone. No. Like, at all. And that's... And you wouldn't well, be. yeah, I don't know. I think you would be. Because she's like, yeah, get your gang members to rape me. I don't care. Like, I'll be fine tomorrow. So it was just surprising because no matter who she came up against, she's like, yeah, whatever, I'll hold my own. I don't understand that scene with Frank. Like, why did? She, why was she there with him? She, like, slept with him, and I don't know why. See, and that was another thing where it's like they cut from the farmhouse where he's just shown up and he's, yeah. like, looking for this um, with the model, and then they're in the cave freaking whatever Lair. it is. <laughs> yeah, um, like, railroad house thing sleeping together and then there's a flashback which is harmonicas which isn't clear and then they're at the morton's train again and then they're back at like it's just all over the fucking place and that's the thing where i'm saying like it's not clear that it's a flashback yeah i know what you're saying. you know so anyway why is she with him in the first place I think she was coerced to be there, and she said something. That's what it seemed like, but then when we got into that scene, it did not seem like it. He's like, is there anything you wouldn't do to save your own ass? And she said nothing. So that's why she's sleeping with him, because she knows it's probably going to put her in a little bit better situation. And that's why she ended up trying to sell the property, is because there's nothing she wouldn't do to save her own ass. You know what I mean? Like... It's shitty, but, like, she just fell into this money, basically. It's not going to affect her any if she loses it. So she's like, whatever, get these people off my case. Bye. She was a fascinating character, and I do like that they didn't go with the standard beautiful damsel in distress kind of trait. She sort of was in times, but she generally held her own. And, like I said, she wasn't scared of anyone. Mm, That surprised me. I thought it was a really interesting thing for her to say when Cheyenne first shows up at the house and he's like make me a coffee or whatever that was a confusing scene too because I'm like are they in cahoots but they weren't just the way he was talking to her Mm. anyway interesting thing for her to say you know basically you could rape me I'd get up go have a hot bath and I'd be the same tomorrow as I was 
the day before or whatever. Like, there's nothing you could do that could change me. I'm like, that's a really, like, anti-victim mentality that I've never really encountered before. Yeah. And certainly wouldn't be typical of women in that time period. So I thought that was a really powerful line that was really telling about what kind of character she is and the stuff she's been through and things and was probably my first indication that she has sex with a lot of men. Yeah. That's probably why you thought she was a hooker, yeah. That was my, yeah, that was my first indication. I didn't understand a big thread of this. So she's got this land that's worth lots of money. They they established that it has potential, obviously, because it's got the water, the only water for miles. You can have the town there, the railroad's going through it. Very wealthy. So she goes to auction it off. She doesn't care how much she gets for it. She's like, just throw it away. I don't really care. I don't want it. So then Harmonica shows up, says, I'll take it for $5,000. And Cheyenne hands himself in to get his own bounty so that they can pay the money to buy the land to give it back to her in the first place. Yeah. So, like, before all that happens, like you said, he walks into her house he says, get me a coffee. All this happens, and then at the end, he walks back into her house and says, get me a coffee. And it just felt like nothing progressed. What was yeah. the point of any of that? So, okay. You was, you've essentially just given the $5,000 bounty to... Her. Her, yeah. So, all right. Frank rocks up and kills everybody. He He comes to the McBain farm and kills everybody because he wants that land... Because of its wealth. So that he can profit from it. Yes. Yeah, and there's a there's a clause in there that says, you know, if they don't get the station built before the railroad arrives, McBain's going to lose it anyway. That wasn't going to happen if he was still alive. Take McBain yes. out of the picture. Morton and Frank get everything they want. Cheyenne and Harmonica are helping Jill because both of them have a beef against Frank, right? He's wronged her. This is a good excuse for us to come in. And, you know, fuck up his shit. Oh, and by the way, we get to help a nice lady. Right, because during that auction scene, there was a lot of guys there stopping other people from bidding on it. So that you get this cheap land without the claws for very little money. They were Frank and Morton's men. That's what I mean, guys. yes. So, and it was Frank who forced her to sell the land in the first place. He was coercing her to sell it. If you don't sell it, I'll kill you. Right, so that he could get it for practically nothing, reap only benefits, and get it without the claws. Yes. Okay. She didn't want to sell it. You know, why would she want to sell it? But I don't think she cared if she did, though. No, like, that was the thing, right? Is that she's more worried about her own skin, which I think is fair. Mm Because, again, like, a week ago, you didn't know you were going to have all this. You didn't have a clue, right? So it's really not that much of a loss to you. However, so she's really getting the best end of the stick because not only is she getting to keep the farm, she gets an extra $5,000. Yeah. Right? She's getting paid $5,000 just to keep the farm out of Frank's hands. Yes. Okay. Okay. I'm following along with this much better than I did when I was watching it. So they didn't want it for themselves. I I think they wanted to be able to reap some of the benefits, but... Really, they just didn't want him to have it. Right. Does that make more sense? Yes, it does. She definitely benefits the most out of this whole movie. Yep. She definitely ends up pretty well off in the end as well. Well, because they both leave at the end. Cheyenne and Harmonica. 
they both leave, kind of showing, you know, it doesn't really matter to them that they don't get to see any of this. They'll come back at some point, but they're not expecting anything from her. I wonder if the trait of nobody ends up with the beautiful girl in the end had really been done before, because I imagine it's quite typical that you have this romantic love story that pays off in the end, and Mm. instead you've got this single woman who's, like, dealing with this land all by herself, and she's pretty much in a place of power because of it. You know what's really interesting, too? It doesn't seem typical, that's all. For a once upon a time story, it's a very not fairy tale ending. Yeah, yeah. I like that, Um, and I think it's very realistic as to what would happen. You know, like, I think it would have been very shocking for the audience as well that she's... You don't think any of the guys would have been trying to get with her? I think that would have been realistic. Okay, sure. But somebody did. You know what I mean? Like, Frank did. And I'm saying that I think it's very realistic that her trade being that she's a hooker, she's going to use that to her advantage. She used that to keep herself alive. Mm. I think that's quite realistic. You know what I mean? The fact that she's going to stick around because it's easier than going back to New Orleans and she's got a purpose now, I think that's pretty realistic. The fact that she didn't move on real quickly because the man she loved got murdered, that's pretty realistic, you know, whether or not people were trying to get with her. Mm. Yeah, okay. Yeah. No, I thought that's what you meant with her character arc. Mm. Well, I'm glad that we do this podcast because I had no idea what the hell was going on at the end of this movie. And even just in this conversation, I'm, I'm understanding it more. So I'm glad that we do this. One thing that I am still unclear on, who went and massacred Morton's train? Was that not Cheyenne's gang? I think so, but how would they know? Because... Because that's how he got shot. Who? Cheyenne. Oh, Okay. And he says at the end, like, that bastard got me in the end or something like that. Yeah. Yeah, okay. Because there's a couple things, like, the shootout in town is because Morton paid Frank's men to mutiny against him. Um, Talking through it makes me like it a little bit more. It was enjoyable to watch. I think there's other ones I've enjoyed more. It was very aesthetically pleasing to the eye to watch. I think the score was a bit shit, personally, um, for what could have been, but that's just me. I liked the characters. No, it was good. It was... I don't want to say it was good. It deserves the praise it has got. Okay. Like, the the praise of it being a great Western movie? Yeah. It's allowed to be great and still me not like it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think this was one of the last great western movies before the fall of that genre Mm. this was one of the last heavy hitters um before the end of the 60s i do really like the characters the setting the story traits uh i don't like the score as much as good and the bad and the ugly and the linear storyline there and i do like clint eastwood's character of that no-name badass silent type than charles bronson because The man with no name really feels like a genius who's very good at what he does. Mm. And Charles Bronson's kind of like that, but... He seems more brash, honestly. Brash. Like, Charles Bronson's character seems a bit more impulsive. Okay. He seems more hell-bent on revenge and doesn't seem... Like, he is very intelligent and cool and calculating, but not as cool and calculating as 
Clint Eastwood's character. And not nearly as funny. Yeah. I think I like this movie in most ways better than The Good and the Bad and the Ugly. I like The Good, the Bad, the and the Ugly better for its Clint Eastwood character, the linear storyline, and the score. Yeah. That's my analysis of the two, the comparison. Yeah. Um, and I apologize if we missed any of the brilliance or nuance that Leon was putting into this, because this is obviously a classic. Um, we're not professionals. This is just our first well, impression on the whole thing. And I want to say, like, sitting back and retrospectively analyzing this, I'm realizing it a lot more, you know, um, some of that nuance and everything. Again, like this it, is why I said it definitely needs a second watch. Yeah. Well, and just anytime you've got this many, like, gang members. Yeah, there's you know a lot of I elements mean? going on. You run into issues in the same way that I ran into issues with the Godfather movies. It was for the same freaking thing. It was for the same reason, because there's so many people. Um, yeah. I liked it, and I can see why it's a classic. Hmm. We have been Danielle and Brenton this week. Thanks for joining us. Feel free to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Check us out on all the socials. We're most active on Instagram. You can follow us on Facebook, comment on SoundCloud or YouTube, or support us on Patreon. And until next week, thanks for listening.